Good day, everyone, and welcome to today's program. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, you will have an opportunity to ask questions during the question and answer session. You may register to ask a question at any time by pressing the star and one on your touchdown phone. The information and views conveyed by Energy Intelligence on this call should not be considered as advice, recommendation, representation, or endorsement, and should not be relied on in connection with any business or investment decision. Any use of such information by any person or organization is such person's or organization's role risk. Please note this call may be recorded. It is now my pleasure to turn today's call over to Jim Washer. Please go ahead. Thank you, hello, and welcome to today's virtual roundtable. My name is Jim Washer. I'm Executive Editor with Energy Intelligence, and it's my pleasure to be your host for today's discussion. Gas markets in 2017, a better year ahead. Now, 2016 was certainly a historic year for the gas industry, and particularly for LNG, with the long-awaited start of US exports, the completion of Shell's takeover of LNG giant BG, and the merger at the end of the year of the Qatar Gas and Ras Gas ventures in Qatar. But aside from those historic events, it wasn't a particularly encouraging year for the global gas sector. Prices remained weak, virtually no new supply projects got the green light, and there was little progress in the great debate over gas pricing. So will 2017 be any better? To try to answer that question, I'm joined today by three of Energy Intelligence's gas industry experts. Joining us from Asia, we have our Singapore Bureau Chief, Clara Tan. Here in London, I'm joined by our London Bureau Chief and Editor of World Gas Intelligence, Jane Collin. And in the US, we have our Houston Bureau Chief and Editor of Gas Market Reconnaissance, Tom Haywood. Clara, Jane and Tom, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Now, Jane and Tom, if I can start with both of you. Looking ahead to this year, can we expect any improvement in gas prices or any visible progress towards rebalancing? Okay, well, well, I'll start, but I'll talk about Europe and Asia leaving the US for Tom. And basically, the answer to both your questions, can you expect any improvement or any visible progress, is no and no. However, I would, there is one caveat. It's that while uh, continued low prices are bad for producers' bottom lines, they do make it easier for suppliers to crack open new markets where gas competitiveness against coal is key, so they're not an unalloyed disaster. Um, just, just to uh, set the scene, at the moment, actually, um, gas prices are in Asia and Europe have or were recently at two-year highs. Um, this is basically because it, we've had cold weather. We had cold weather in Asia plus supply disruptions, which are kind of disappeared now, but we've got continued cold weather in Europe, so these are holding prices up. But once the cold weather dissipates, we can expect prices to fall back too. Um, and for the rest of this year, and in fact through the rest of this decade, um, prices are expected to remain under pressure as more liquefaction capacity comes online, as global demand growth slows, which will create a bigger market imbalance. Um, just to give you an idea of the scale of the capacity build-out, at the end of um, 2014, there were roughly um, nominal capacity, liquefaction capacity of 300 million tonnes a year. Between 2015 and 2020, 150 million tonnes a year of new capacity is scheduled to be online. This year, it's 40 million tonnes are scheduled to be online. But there are some questions over this. Um, which will affect or could affect how tight or your, the market is this year. One is how much will actually come online. Last year, for example, 
Um, there was about, I think, 36 million tonnes a year of capacity, new capacity expected online. Some of this was late. Some of this new capacity didn't work very well. And at the same time, you had some existing capacity in Nigeria, Trinidad, and Equatorial Guinea, uh, where production was dropping. The, as a result, um, that it, the balances were tighter than many had expected. But the question is whether this might happen this year. Um, will projects be late? And also, how reliable will be some of the capacity that started up last year? I'm thinking in particular of Gorgon in Australia and Angola LNG, which have both been suffering ongoing problems. Anyway, but assuming everything works reasonably all right, um, I've been looking at some pundit prices, and they reckon Asian spot prices over the full year should be slightly higher than last year's average of just over 560 per million BTU. And we have Wood Mac actually putting the Asian average at $6. Um, some Asian traders are suggesting that Asian prices might drop back to levels on the UK MVP later this year, and I was just looking yesterday to see what um, levels on the forward curve for the MVP are, and it's for the second quarter 560, third 540, fourth just under six. Uh, looking slightly further out, um, Total is forecasting MB price. MBP prices at 550 out for the rest of this decade because of the grain supply glut. Um, and this glut is expected to persist through the early 20s, uh, 2020s in the absence of more FIDs, of which you'll be hearing more about from one of my colleagues. In fact, we've had very, very few new project FIDs. Analysts are forecasting shortages will start emerging in 2023 or 2024. But obviously, that's a slight moving target. Anyway, that's me for Europe and Asia. So I think one of my colleagues, Tom Hayward, will now talk about the U.S. outlook for, for this year. Well, um, I'm sorry I'm speaking from a bus because of the flooding in Houston. But uh, I would like to say there is little doubt that the U.S. natural gas market is looking up um, quite a bit. Um, at this point, it's easy to say that prices in 2017 and 2018 will be at least a dollar higher than they were in 2016. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the pricing range between $3 and $3 and $3.50 per MMBTU uh, it looks pretty much set for this winter if it's not even higher. And we're not going to see a, a spring slump as we did in 2015 and 16. Now, the reasons for this, is a structural tightening of the supply-demand balance. If you remember, in 2016 we have a we had a we had a storage glut, for instance, that of a trillion cubic feet, you know, in the in the spring. And so it was a a very dire situation, and people were assuming that this would last for years. But what's happened is there's been a structural tightening. Well, not only has the uh, storage uh, gone back down to normal levels uh, because of the cold early uh, December. Uh, the, uh, there's also a structural tightening that has nothing to do with winter demand. Uh, we're seeing, uh, we've seen strong uh, demand for exports uh, to Mexico and growing exports uh, by LNG. Uh, we've also seen larger industrial demand, you know, such as, you know, for gas fired, uh, for gas fired generation. And 
there's and so it's estimated that the demand next year will be about 2.5 BCF a day higher uh, than it was last year. And but at the same time, production hasn't really responded as yet, and it probably won't respond unless prices are in the 350 and perhaps a bit above. And but when the when production responds, there's a lag time of about uh, at least six months before any production can come online. So you're looking at a probable uh, price spike toward the end of 2017, and this will last into 2018. 2019 might become a little softer as supply brings into the market, but one of the other issues is the in Appalachia, our main uh, production basin right now for game, um, has some real severe supply constraints uh, of takeaway capacity and pipelines, and that doesn't look to be uh, loosening as quickly as people had hoped because of environmental pushback, etc. And so you're going to have to look at uh, places like the Haynesville to make up that difference. So the short answer is uh, natural gas prices will be higher in 2017 and 2016 for some reasons that can't be repeated. Okay. Um, now, Tom, if we can stick with you, 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 you and I, first of all, can I just say I appreciate you making the effort to, to dial in today, given the weather problems you're all having over there in Houston. Um, you touched on LNG exports. Um, we're expecting more U.S. LNG export capacity on stream this year. So how do you assess the outlook for U.S. LNG exports? I mean, they mostly went to Latin America last year, but we could be seeing new markets emerge, like Europe, in 2017. Well, at this point... Um U.S. exports have pretty well been uh, pushed out of the European market. They are just cut out of the European market. Uh, there's only been just a few, um, you know, shipments that have made it that way, just a few shipments uh, into Asia. Mostly the U.S. has been very successful in going to the South American markets during the winter and, and finding market niches uh, in the spot. For instance, you know, you might have lower quality uh, markets such as, um, you know, emerging markets such as Egypt or Pakistan, you know, which don't have the, um, you know, which aren't as um, anxious to set long-term commitments that are looking for spot pricing, you know, for spot cargoes as needed. And the U.S. is absolutely geared for that kind of market. And as that spot market grows, the U.S. can become more important. Um, it, we, it, the tolling model that the U.S. has puts a lot of, you know, cargoes out on the out on the ocean uh, that don't necessarily have a set market like a 20-year, you know, supply market for someone. But they what they do have is the ability to meet demand, incremental demand where it's needed. Mm. So that's really where the future of uh, U.S. LNG looks right now. Okay. And it's been very successful. Okay. You, 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 you talked um, a little bit about the, um, the, the sort of slightly improving price outlook in the second half of the year. I also just wanted to talk to you about the sort of political context in the, in the U.S. for the gas sector. We have Donald Trump's inauguration 
At the end of this week, he's promising to cut taxes. He's promising to roll back regulation. He's also promising to save the U.S. coal industry. So do we expect his presidency to be good or bad for the U.S. gas sector? Well, all the things that uh, Donald Trump has said that he might want to do wouldn't be bad for the uh, U.S. gas industry. And it would also be good for the coal industry. But that said, his ability to actually execute plans are very much tied up. For instance, um, let's say environmental regulation. Uh, you know, the Obama administration rolled out recently uh, new methane rules. Um, because those rules are set, you can't just go in and erase them. Um, they are in force. And the only way to change them is to go through hearings and go through a multi-year process. You know, it would take a long time to undo some of the things that that you can do. You can't do it by fiat. On the other hand, you might decide to not enforce the rules. But that invites um, lawsuits, and the administration may not be prepared to lose a lawsuit in a case like that. So... Their hands are, are a little tied as to what they can actually do to to roll back regulations that even if they're seen to be onerous to the uh, gas industry. As far as coal goes, there is there hasn't been a coal plant built in this country or even planned in this country, um, you know, in years. So you you can't. I mean, the in a private sector, uh, the only coal projects going forward are public-private experimental, pretty much, uh, pilot projects and, and, right. and ones that they've rolled out. So, but, but actually coal is, a, is a, as a generation of fuel, is, has lost uh, traction simply because it's not as economic as natural gas. And natural gas sets the price, and coal can't compete in that. Uh, the only thing that coal has going for it is reliability, which could keep plants operating. Uh, but it's not going to bring new plants uh, to the table. Uh, and eventually, they'll just be phased out. Was there anything more than you want me to say about that? No, I think that's, that's covered a lot of points there, Tom. Thank you for that. Um, let's sure. turn now, if we can, Clara, to you um, and, and Asia which uh, obviously remains a key growth market for gas and particularly for LNG. What, what's the outlook for demand there this year, and particularly for key economies like China and India? Thanks, Jim. Um, the two markets are price sensitive, so lower prices should spur demand. In fact, we've seen uh, Indian imports have spiked by 35% in the first nine months of last year, and Chinese imports rose by 30% in the first 11 months. And in India, Petronet has recently expanded its Dahij terminal to 15 MTPA from 10 MTPA. So there is potential to import more LNG this year. And lower prices have also encouraged new Indian buyers to emerge. But on the other hand, uh, the other terminals at Kochi and Davo are facing infrastructure issues, so that would put constraints on uh, increasing imports there. In China, lower prices domestically has helped to increase gas consumption last year after a weak growth rate in the previous year. But going forward, we see that the pace of reforms in China will be key to determine how fast the domestic gas demand would grow in 2017 and beyond. 
uh, we expect tougher policies will be needed to meet Chinese target for gas to account for 10% of its energy mix by 2020. The NEA, National Energy Administration, has said it will f support further gas reforms, gas pricing reforms. And the previous uh, target that we have uh, read is end 2017, by the end of this year, and to push for third-party access to regas terminals, gas pipelines, and storage tanks. But uh, beyond the two countries in Asia, we are also going to see Pakistan uh, receiving its second FSIU in June this year. The names of the selected LNG suppliers are expected to be announced very soon. So we have seen Pakistan uh, starting its imports for the first time last year, and uh, people were initially quite apprehensive about Pakistan credibility, but so far it has uh, established itself as a credible first-time buyer. The country is gas short, so it has a real long-term demand for LNG imports. So oh. it is now evaluating uh, commercial bids for five-year contracts and 15-year contracts, and they total almost 1.5 MPPA in supply. Thailand is another interesting country to watch this year. Um, PTT is doubling the capacity of its regas terminal to 10 MDPA and will be kicking off uh, two new long-term contracts with Shell and BP. Okay. Um, if we can just stick with, with LNG uh, for, for a moment here. I mean, there's been some suggestion with this generally improving outlook for oil prices that we could see more companies moving forward with sanctioning new projects this year, including um, potentially in the LNG sector. Um, I mean, do we really expect any sort of uptick in sanctioning projects to include much in the way of LNG? And, and what supply sources and projects look like they could be the most promising or the, or the most economically robust? Uh, unfortunately, a low oil price is just one of the problems faced by companies which are developing new projects. They face uh, other challenges like securing uh, long-term buyers and uh, driving costs down because uh, liquefaction projects are known to be expensive, big-ticket investments. So only projects which have secure off-takers would stand a better chance of uh, achieving an FID this year. So we see one of them is the ENI Coral FLNG project in Mozambique. Uh, BP is expected to, to be off-taking all the volumes from the project there. And uh, Ophir Fortuna project in Equatorial Guinea is uh, also understood to have a attracted a lot of interest from uh, portfolio players. So far, we have not seen an Asian end user signing a long-term contract with a new project in the last two years. They have signed portfolio deals with uh, companies like BP, like Shell or Total, but uh, not with new projects. So we see that uh, the buy and sell side, they can only, they, that can only happen when both sides reconcile with each other on pricing, on uh, non-pricing issues as well, and, uh, and uh, overcome the challenge of attracting financing for 10-year contracts rather than 20 years. And uh, right now, we see many suppliers are hoping that they can replace those big and expensive pro contracts in Japan and Korea, which are going to expire in the next few years and emerging markets in Southeast Asia and South Asia, like Pakistan and Bangladesh. Uh, but right now, the competition in the contracting market is very tough. From a buyer's perspective, um, lower, smaller-scale projects, which have a lower capex, they do offer some advantages. They are less complex. They face a lower risk of running to cost overruns and startup delays, lessons that the buyers have learned from Australian projects. 
and uh, developers could achieve FID faster as uh, they have less volumes to sell and uh, easier for developers to secure financing. So basically the projects that could reach FID this year are the smaller scale projects, not more than $10 billion. And on the other hand, we have seen mega projects uh, put on hold under review or delay, uh, such as the Petronas uh, Pacific Northwest project in Canada, Woodside Browse project in Australia, and Shell's LNG Canada project. Okay, thank you. Um, Jane, if I can turn to you, we've, we've looked at North America, we've looked at the Asian market, and we should look at Europe. Um, so what are the prospects for gas demand there this year, particularly given the political, the shaky political and economic outlook? We've heard from Tom that there may not be much space for U.S. gas in Europe. Where does Russia fit into all this as well? Okay. Well, on European demand, actually, you may be surprised to learn, it's actually increased for the past two years. Um, well, we know it went up about uh, 4% in 2015. Preliminary um, estimates for last year, it went up 6%. But, in fact, the increases are mainly weather-related. And last year, it was also helped by the fact coal prices arose, or, uh, well, gas prices were lower and coal prices were higher, so it allowed, uh, allowed uh, gas to make headway in power, power generation. But having said that, really, the trend is down. Uh, the longer-term trend is down and, and not, you know, not very bright. Uh, just to, to give you an idea, in 2010, the peak, which is a peak year for all the high points in uh, European gas demands uh, in Europe, uh, it was about 525 BCM a year. Last year, the preliminary forecast put it at less than 450. So you can see it's gone down rather a lot. And by and large, there's not much prospect for much in the way of an upturn. There's various reasons for this. Um, improved energy efficiency has reduced overall energy demand. Um, renewables, are, uh, well, increased penetration by renewables are capping increases in gas market share. And then we also have the whole thing about coal prices, which has a big impact on, on gas demand. So you asked me whether there's room for U.S. LNG or more room for U.S. LNG this year. Well, um, last year, as we heard Tom saying, only three cargoes made it to Europe. Two were kind of to the little um, Iberian outpost, one Spain, Portugal. The only one that sort of made it to kind of mainland Europe, as we think of it, was to Italy in December. There is talk at the moment that given um, the rise in uh, European gas prices, some more cargoes may come to Europe, but we don't actually know. But by and large, um, more cargoes could find their way to Europe this year, but generally it's nothing like the flood that many had been predicting last year. And kind of like last year, price is key. Um, I've seen, well, actually I've seen one, was there's been various forecasts of when U.S. LNG into Europe becomes profitable, worthwhile, and I've seen one suggesting it was crude at 50 to $60 a barrel, which is roughly where it is now. Henry Hub prices in the U.S. need to be below, need to be below $3 per M million BTU, and from what Tom was saying, it looks like um, Henry Hub prices this year are going to be above 350 and assuming oil prices, rent prices remain roughly where they are now, it doesn't seem there's going to be much door for, you know, opening for US LNG to Europe. This is this year. Anyway, at the same time, um, you asked about Russia. Well, obviously, Russia, um, well, all are Europe's main pipe gas uh, suppliers. Russia is the biggest, but you've also got Norway and Algeria. 
are doing their best to maintain market share in what is not an expanding market. Russia is obviously tried hardest. It accounts for about a third of the uh, EU market, European market, and last year it actually um, pumped uh, volumes to sales to Europe, well, and Turkey. We're at an all-time high. It says they increased about 12%, and it wants to maintain uh, sales at that level this year. The big question is whether it can. One of the big reasons why sales increased last year was low oil prices, and as you know, um, Gazprom, well, the bulk of Gazprom's contracts are oil indexed, which meant that Roughly by the middle of last year, Gazprom's export prices, this is just the average, were about 4.20. Now, and I was just looking up what UK MVP prices were mid last year, and in fact, they were higher than the Gazprom price. But since then, I mean, there is a, a, a time lag uh, uh, embedded in the Gazprom contracts, you know, with what goes on with oil prices. But oil prices have been going up, and it looks like uh, export prices now are nearer 5.60 per MMBTU which obviously does that make them less appealing to um, European buyers? Could it open the door to more US LNG? Mm. Um, we'll have to see. But Gazprom at the same time has also been adjusting to the new market realities in Europe, which is more gas on gas pricing. So it's been um, decreasing the oil linkage in its long-term contracts and linking it more to European hubs and also selling more gas at auction. So basically we'll just have to see what happens. Okay, thank you. Very comprehensive. Um, at this point, why don't we uh, pause and see if we have any questions from our audience. Right. At this time, if you would like to ask a question, please press the star and one on your touchdown phone. You may withdraw your question at any time by pressing the pound key. Once again, to ask a question, please press the star and one on your touchdown phone. We'll pause a moment to allow questions to queue. Okay, thank you. And while we're waiting... Um, Let's look at the future a little bit here, further out than just this year. I mean, if we're looking at you know, where gas fits into the future energy mix, you have pressure from coal on one side, and you have sharply falling costs for clean energy sources like wind and solar on the other. So is there going to be space, is there going to be a role for gas in the world's future energy mix? Can it really be, as some oil companies are saying, a transition fuel as you move to a lower carbon future, or do we need to see prices come down even further? Oh, you're asking me. Okay. Well, as you have just said, yeah, the gas industry or uh, oil producers have been talking up gas's green credentials and have been shifting more of their portfolios to gas. So, in fact, rather than call them oil producers, we could call some of them actual gas producers. Mm. Um, it's in, you know, historically, gas has been the fastest growing fossil fuel. And the assumption has been that it will go on growing strongly. The trouble is that's not actually happening. And long-term forecasts from the likes of um, IEA are for, for gas demand are being dialed back. Uh, so, well, why could this be happening? You know, what, what, what does it say about what people think about, you know, consumers think about gas? Um, historically, um, one of gas's big roles is in power generation. Historically, um, it's uh, made in roads at oil's expense. Now it's um, coal, one of the, well, the fossil fuel it's competing against is coal. But it's not really just the price of gas that matters. You say, oh, all the, you know, gas prices need to come down further. It's the relative price against coal. Yeah, if they come down, coal goes up. Yeah, as last year, you can see it makes inroads. If gas goes down, but coal comes down more, well, no, coal still goes to, 
well. Um, you, you can see regional variations, obviously, in the U.S., um, record low gas prices plus environmental policy of uh, encouraged coal to gas switching mm. uh, plus growth in renewables. Outside the US though, coal tends to be cheaper than gas. And country, well, I mean, it's not surprising, countries which are reliant on uh, cheap coal are ambivalent about replacing it. Um, that includes parts of Asia, which are also concerned about supply security, which means you do tend to look at domestic coal as a supply source and also renewables, but also places where you might not expect it so much, like Germany, which also has its own, which it still relies heavily on coal, despite, um, you know, its energy vendor, you know, transition to a low carbon future. So there's a sort of dichotomy there. Um, one of the problems is outside um, the US, well, well, Europe and Asia, gas was not competitive against coal at all from 2011 to 2014. So in Europe, what you saw was its gas's share of power generation falling, renewables increasing, and coal and nuclear remaining steady. Um, last year, it, it did change because gas prices fell, which encouraged fuel switching. But basically, to encourage sustained fuel switching, or one way of doing it, would be to introduce tough carbon pricing. Um, which is what a number of European uh, gas companies have been advocating. But in Europe at the moment, except for the UK, you don't, um, which has its own carbon price floor, prices are very weak. Um, roughly, carbon prices in the EU at the moment are rough equivalent of $6 a tonne. And what I've seen, to get, basically encourage a big shift uh, coal-fired generation from coal-fired generation to gas, you have some people saying, but actually you need a carbon price of anywhere from $35 a tonne to longer term, $100 a tonne. So basically countries that now depend on coal or are planning to increase uh, coal-fired capacity are not going to be doing this you know, not going to be introducing carbon prices at that level. And what you tend to see that countries that are willing or have introduced carbon pricing to discourage coal are also more likely to, to be those with measures supporting renewables. Again, gas gets squeezed, uh, particularly as the costs of clean energy are, are falling so rapidly. I mean, there was one thing I saw, solar power costs, for example, have um, apparently fallen over 80% uh, since 2000 and a forecast to fall a further 60% by uh, 2050. So you, they are, you know, they will be competitive with, with, with uh, conventional uh, fossil fuels. And also, just the final thing I'd like to point out, there's a kind of weird disconnect in Europe, I think, between what gas producers are saying and what um, the perception is. Gas producers like to say, oh, you know, gas is a brilliant fuel because it's clean and you know, um, well, it's clean. But essentially, most politicians and environmentalists definitely still see it as a fossil fuel. So, you know, it's not working to differentiate gas from coal. Um, but one thing that producers could do, I think, longer term is, I mean, one legitimate um, complaint about gas or one, one thing that dents its clean image is methane emissions. Mm. If producers could do something to clean up methane emissions, I think that would go a long way to helping, especially as decarbonisation takes hold. Okay. Um, let's just check now if we've had any questions in from our audience. Um, currently, it appears like we have no further questions, but once again, if you'd like to ask a question, please press the star and one on your touchdown phone. Hey, Jim. Can I add something about the uh, replacing uh, coal with renewables and or nuclear plants as they shut down with renewables? Sure, sure, Tom. Please go ahead. Yeah. 
there, there is one huge problem with that in that the, the say the Indian Indian Point plant in New York is going to shut down. That's a 2,000 megawatt plant. If you wanted to replace that with gas, you'd need a 2,000 megawatt plant. Um, which, but if you were to replace that with say wind or solar, you'd have to have a much larger megawatt build out. Say, say 6,000 megawatts of wind, um, onshore wind, because the capacity factors uh, at that particular place aren't as great. Whereas in gas, it's always the same. Well, there, you know, you'd have to build 6,000 uh, megawatts of wind to replace 2,000 megawatts of nuclear, and you'd also have to build transmission. So the expense is quite enormous, and the projects would have to be gigantic. So that is an issue going forward for to think about when you thought, think, think about replacing uh, dirtier coal or nuclear with, um, with anything besides gas. Okay, that's a good point, Tom. Thank you for that. Um, there's there's one other, just to move away a little bit from this um, very broad debate about what gas is. Okay. There's one um, more technical question perhaps that we should we should come to. Uh, maybe Clara can, can help um, help us answer this. There's been huge debate in recent years over how gas is priced in LNG. Many consumers are, shift, are seeking a shift in pricing away from the traditional oil indexation model. How do we expect that process to develop this year? If oil prices are stronger, is that going to change attitudes to that whole question of oil indexation? Um, the role of oil in power generation in Asia has already been diminishing, so the shift from oil indexation should continue. But uh, we see that the pace will be affected by oil prices, whether they go up or down. And uh, different buyers will have different attitudes towards oil indexation, depending on their outlooks on oil prices and supply positions. And Asian buyers are not homogeneous. So in 2015 and 2016, uh, the fall in oil prices, they have actually encouraged buyers to seek oil indexation in new supplies. And they have achieved at very competitive uh, oil slopes. And uh, during that time, U.S. supplies also lost their attractiveness to buyers when uh, oil was less than $50. So there were no new deals done with uh, Asian buyers at that time. But uh, there are also buyers who believe that oil prices would rise higher, not necessarily $100 again, maybe 70 or 75 and they would prefer non-oil indexation offered by U.S. LNG, uh, especially those buyers uh, which have missed the first wave of U.S. projects. They might be looking at a second wave. And uh, for the buyers which have already bought sufficient U.S. volumes indexed with Henry Hub, they are now likely to further diversify their pricing exposure in long-term contracts by pricing them against another market index. Uh, one option would be the UK MBP, so that they can develop a basket of indices. And uh, we are also seeing hybrid formulas are getting more and more popular in Asian. Uh, they comprise an oil price and an in gas in market index. So what buyers and sellers need to do is to decide on the ratio between the oil and the gas market index. This helps buyers to spread their pricing risk and is also preferred by smaller buyers uh, which want to follow their peers in shifting away from oil, but they face constraints uh, because of their small demand. But we are also seeing, on the other hand, a group of niche buyers. They prefer oil indexation because they are looking to replace oil with LNG in power, in transport, and LNG bunkering. 
So until Asia establishes its own uh, transparent and trusted market index, whether it be in Singapore, Japan, or China, or in all the three countries, uh, I think uh, Asian buyers will continue to experiment to get the right pricing mix and the exposure. And uh, already many Asian buyers have signed oiling contracts with Australian projects a few years ago. So oil indexation is going to continue to stay with Asia for at least the next 20 years. So it's not going away yet. Okay. It has a future. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for that, Clara. Um, we are nearly out of time, but let's just check if we have had any questions in from the audience. We currently have uh, one question in queue. Okay. Uh, should we go ahead with that? All right. Jay Eden, uh, your line is open. Please go ahead. Yeah, hello. So I don't know if you can hear me. I was trying to record the question earlier on. Um, it was just a general point to the people in the conference. Um, with gas flaring, that's still a problem, and flaring numbers up last year, and CCS carbon capture and storage projects only really getting supported for enhanced oil recovery, um, what should the gas industry be doing for its environmental credentials to sell itself as a cleaner fossil fuels, especially in countries which are looking to have much stricter um, carbon controls? Okay, Jay, thanks for that question. Who would like to handle that? Clara, Jane, any thoughts on that? No, well, I mean, all I can say is that, you know, there is a World Bank flaring initiative, which is where, in fact, these numbers have come from. You know, companies have, some companies have signed up to it, um, but a lot of the world's biggest flarers haven't. I mean, it's when you, where you see where flaring is greatest, Russia is one of the places, Iran is one of the biggest places, Iraq. I mean, Iraq is trying to get a handle on it, but it costs a huge amount of money and, and is very difficult, I mean, especially given the circumstances in Iraq. Nigeria is bad. You know, I mean, it's, it, it's like when you say what the industry should be doing, parts of the industry are trying to do something about it, but there's, it's, it's very, very costly, actually, to um, cut flaring. Um, and at a time, I'm not, I'm not excusing flaring at all, but at a time when people are cutting budgets, getting rid of staff, you know, I mean, it's not going to be a priority for them. But, but they do need, to, if they want to make the point or get the message across that gas is clean, you know, and it does have a future, they do have to do something about it. Yes, that's a good question, a good answer. It's not, it's not at all good for the um, image of the industry, I guess. Okay, I think with that we are in fact out of time. Um, I should just thank everyone who's uh, been listening in and um, also of course Jane and Clara and Tom for their thoughtful answers. Um, if you send in questions via email that we've not had time for, we'll try and get responses to you directly back via email. Um, our next virtual roundtable will take place, takes place next month. Please check our website www.energyintel.com for details of the topic and participants which will be posted shortly. So until then, thank you, goodbye, and see you in February.